As a, as a kid, um, I think I was in fifth grade, my, uh, we went on a field trip, and we went to the Long Beach Symphony. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to a symphony, but um, I'm not musically inclined. So we go to the symphony, and they have all the instruments out, and each individual person plays their instrument solo. And, you know, some instruments sound better than others. Um, and yet there was a beauty in each of the instruments. And then finally, um, the conductor says, now let's listen to them all together. And so they end up in, you know, doing music together. And once it was all together and it was synced and it was united, it was beautiful. And there was instruments there that I had never even seen and they looked kind of weird actually. I didn't even know what they were. Even to this day, I don't know what they are. But it was beautiful to hear them um, all together in unison, just making this joyful melody. And unity, unity is something that we all seek. And it's actually ingrained in our souls as being made into the image of God. God himself is a trinity. He is united within himself. Yet, sin has had its impact. And unity can feel almost elusive or fragile at times. And we're gonna, people do anything to, to cultivate this unity, and usually it has to do with compromise. Usually people compromise even things that they hold the most dear for unity. But yet, as Christians, we're called to pursue unity through imitating the humble attitude of Jesus. And today's message is titled, Radical Unity and Radical Humility. So if you can, go ahead and turn to Philippians 1.27. And like uh, Mac mentioned, it's on the back of the bulletin as well. And I use the word radical, and some of you might be saying, wow, that's kind of a, well, a radical word. It's kind of forceful. And I think we need to be forceful on this. We are entrenched in a culture that is radically uh, focused on the individual, um, radically focused on, on pride, which is totally antithetical to life in Christ. Therefore, it requires a radical response. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to examine the call, the means, and the prescription that we find in God's word for unity. So let's pray and let's ask God to just be with us and illuminate his scripture. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this day. Please, Illuminate your word to us. Please um, prepare our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us the things we do not know. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is the radical call for unity. Now, just to kind of catch up where we're at. So Paul is in prison. He's writing a letter to the Philippians. And... Paul's been talking about his ministry context and then his future ministry context, and now he starts to get into some very practical um, things. He starts talking about some of the problems that Philippians were having, namely disunity. And we see this in early on in chapter 1. He talks about these, these pastors that have used his imprisonment as a platform to elevate themselves. And then in the, 
here in a couple chapters, we're going to read about a couple of, of women in the congregation that are having an issue with unity, and it's affecting the entire congregation. And so Paul starts off with this, this kind of external perspective of what people see when they see the church and Christians not united. And so he starts off with verse 27 with the command. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this phrase, this command, has a political connotation. And it means more as to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. You see, the Philippians understood citizenship. They were Roman citizens, and they were proud Roman citizens. And so Paul uses that, and he, he reminds them that, listen, you're not just citizens of Rome, but you're citizens of the kingdom of God. And therefore, you must live a life that is worthy of the gospel in every context of life wherever God has placed you. He's really focusing in on this secular, sacred divide that perhaps they were wrestling with and something we wrestle with. Meaning, we think that there's things that are like, this is our church life, and this is not our church life. And we, we compartmentalize our life. And we, there's this divide, this, this divide that we have created, this secular, sacred divide. And Paul's saying, there's no such thing. You're a kingdom, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. So remember that. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God wherever and wherever in the context of life. And then he goes on and he says, stand firm in one spirit. Now, he's using military imagery here. These are all, um, this is a retired military town like we've mentioned. There's Roman guards and Roman army all over the place. And so what the, the Roman soldiers used to do is they'd take spikes and they would take their sandals and they, they would drive in spikes and almost have like cleats. And whenever there would be an onslaught or they would face a crowd or, or an enemy, they would stand side by side and they'd have these metal cleats and they would stand firm. And this is the imagery that he's get, giving them. And, and they would get that. They would say, okay, I've actually experienced that. I know what that's like. He's saying, listen, you need to hold your ground. Maintain your position and just be this united front. He goes on further and he says, striving together as one. This is an athletic connotation. It kind of reminds us of well, football. Today is the Super Bowl, as I can see some people are. Oh, oh that's not what you normally wear. Oh, it is what Doug normally wears. So. <laughs> um, Today is the Super Bowl. And the struggling... Together as one reminds me of an offensive line. I, I, I played, uh, I was a, a guard. And uh, when the offensive line was clicking, like, you're unstoppable. You're striving together. There's this uh, explicit and implicit communication that's happening on the line. You see um, the defense go this way or the, the defensive lineman's foot is pointed a certain way. And you already know what the other person's thinking. And you're striving together. And if there's a break in the offensive line, if there's a if there's disunity in the offensive line, the game does not go well for you. And so this is kind of the connotation. It's struggling, struggling alongside one another with, with boldness and courage. Not a spirit of, of being timid, but boldness and courage. And we see that the foundation for this unity is not social, political, or affinity-based ties. It's based in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, if you live a life that is worthy of the gospel, you will experience opposition from the enemy. It's going to happen. So stand firm. Strive together as one. 
And in verse 29, he says, you're also going to experience, experience suffering. Suffering is just part of the Christian experience. There's one thing that Christ promises, that we will suffer in this world. But he also says, listen, that suffering is not for, for nothing. For in it, you, you are you are preparing this, this, this weight of glory that's being ready to be just poured out upon you. And glory that points to the glory of Jesus Christ. And our unity during these times is a special time when we hit opposition or suffering for God's transformative grace to just pour in us and through us and all around us to those, those people wherever we're at. Whether at work, at home, at the grocery store, in our, at church, and we experience this tender spiritual bond that really is supernatural. I mean, as a church family, when you have other Christians side by side with you and, and you're going through a really bad struggle, opposition, suffering, and all of a sudden one of your brothers or sisters comes up and is right there alongside of you. Like, there's this bond. The Holy Spirit just knits us together in a supernatural way. And he's really appealing to the Philippians. Paul is appealing to the Philippians with this special bond. And they would have got this because there's a special bond that people have in war. And they were warriors. They, they, they were, come from a military background. And so they got that. I could think about my own self. Um, there's men that I have served with that we just have a special bond. I can't really explain it. And perhaps you've experienced it through other things, through other struggles in your life, but you just have this, this, this affection towards them because you went through something together. And Paul says, that's what we are to have as Christians. And that's what we are to bring into wherever God has placed us. But on the other side of that, our witness is destroyed by not addressing the dysfunction in maintaining unity. We have to take this call seriously. And we have to address our dysfunction in maintaining unity. And Paul is addressing the Philippians, and he's saying, listen, get it together, guys. This is a big deal. The world is watching. I mean, when people see us dysfunctional in unity, like, they go and they say, listen, I don't need to enter into a church or be a Christian to experience dysfunction. I'd rather just go somewhere else. I can stay at my own home for dysfunction. Why would I enter into that? The other day, I was having a conversation with my mother-in-law, and she, there, she's not a believer, and she brought you know, her, my attention to, to someone who had claimed to be a Christian but was not living a life worthy of the gospel. And she made sure to, uh, to bring that to my attention and, and say, how can that person call themselves a Christian? I'm sure we've experienced that at one point in time. People are watching. And we're agents of unity. We're called to bring unity wherever we come to. So I have to ask you, are we agents of unity worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we taking this call seriously? So that's the call. Second, we see the radical means for unity. The radical means for unity. Now Paul talks about what the... People externally would, would view us with our disunity. Now he shifts more to internal means. He's really going to talk about what's going on actually at the church of Philippi. What's happening? And so he starts off with verse 1. He says, Therefore, if, 
Now, you might sit there and say, well, what's the big deal about therefore if? That word if right there is an assumption. And he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. He's assuming, listen, if you are in Christ, you have experienced this on some level in the church. Because we all have the Holy Spirit and we have been thrusted in to this family that is united in the Spirit of God. He says, if, in verse 2 he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He's reiterating this call to unity. And then he goes on and he talks about how unity could be eroded. He talks about selfish ambition. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is, is this drive for self-interest at the expense of others. He says, or vain conceit. Vain conceit is, is this, this pride. It's that person who thinks they're better than everyone else. And they think very highly of themselves. I, I want to bring perspective here. Because we read this and we kind of get detached from it. But Paul's addressing a church. He's addressing a good church. The Philippians aren't like the Corinthians. He's addressing a good church. And he's saying, you've got problems. And your problems are with this unity thing. And I don't want it to get, I don't want it to go crazy. I don't want it to, to just take a flame and ruin you. And then he goes and he gives this radical description of unity. He says, in, rather, in humility. Now, the, the word humility in, in the, the Greek Roman context was an offensive word. They're, they don't have a definition. Humility is not a virtue in their culture. Humility is looked at as weakness, as this, this, this servitude that would be less than human. And it would have been very offensive to them. So Paul starts to redefine what humility is. Paul's charting new waters here. He's saying, you think this is what humility is? No. Let me tell you what humility is. And he says, you need to value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each, but each of you to the interest of the others. He says, consider everyone superior to you and seek their well-being above your own. Is what he's saying. And as people call to a life worthy of the gospel, we must remember that we have the ability, as one author writes, to commune or consume one another. And let's get honest. Let's, let's just, this is really a big deal for me on this one. If you, haven't, if, you, if you can't feel my angst in talking about this, and I want to get honest here. This is hard for us. It's hard for us to be humble towards one another. And let's get brutally honest here. We don't seek unity because oftentimes we think we're better than other people. You might not ever say that, but there's an, a, a hint of it as you size somebody up. We naturally size people up. It, it reminds me of when I was a Marine and we'd all wear our uniforms and you'd wear your, your ribbons. And you would go and you'd walk into a room and the first thing you would do is you'd look at their rank and then you'd look right down at their ribbons. And you're sizing people up like, am I better than them? We do that. 
And I can remember where people wouldn't even see, look at each other eye to eye. They would just be looking at the collar and then their chest. And you're like, and then you're having this conversation. You're like, you're trying to discern where they've been and what, what medals they have. And we do that with each other. We see each other and we go, hmm, I wonder what, what school they went to. I wonder where they live. I, I, I wonder, and we look at maybe what people dress or how they speak or how they talk. And this is hard for us because sometimes people are, are annoying to us. They're annoying. You're like, I don't want to be around them. Or it's uncomfortable to be around them. And we're afraid to confront them. We, we just don't get them. They're not like us, so there's got to be something wrong because we're the embodiment of perfection. <laughs> You're laughing, but it's the truth, right? And at the core of it, we just don't think that certain people will bring us value, so we just don't have time for them. If they, if they bring us value, then we have time for them. But if they don't bring us value, well, maybe not so much. And I think we're missing out on a really big blessing here. A huge blessing here. The biggest thing that will destroy a church is not being able to confront one another in conflict. Because we're afraid, or we just don't have time for it. Listen, family life, church life is messy. We're a bunch of people, we're a bunch of broken people, and we're coming together, and we love the same Jesus, we love him with all of our hearts, but we're also people that have past, and we bring baggage, and some of us are just straight up weird, and that's just how it is. And we must see each other as a part of a, of a whole, and we must see each other as bringing value to one of uh, each other. We can't devalue another person because when we devalue another person, we devalue ourselves. And when someone else succeeds, we all succeed. That's the whole point. So I have to ask you, how do you view other people? I want you to do, do me a quick favor. Look around the room. You can wave to people, that's fine. Hey. All right, here's the thing. I just want to give some perspective here. These are the people you're going to be with for eternity. Right. Yes! <laughs> Get to know each other. Get to love each other. If you have a problem, let's talk through it. That's a life worthy of the gospel. So how do we view each other? So that's, that's the second thing. The last thing is the radical prescription for unity through humility. The problem is we don't, it isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem is motivation and imitation. We have to have motivation and sometimes we just don't know what to imitate. And so as Paul redefines humility, he uses the most radical example of humility that's possible. You know, like sometimes you might say, you, you might use an example to show someone something and you're like, yeah, this is a good example. Paul uses the best example. And he says in verse uh, 2, 5, he says, In your relations, relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. He says, have the same attitude, the same mindful disposition, or set your mind on this. He's like, you want to know humility? It's Jesus Christ. Set your mind on what Jesus Christ is. Set your mind on who he is. It's like he's saying that, and he like does a mic dropper. Psh, there you go. And he walks off. This is what he's saying. Wrap your mind on this. Wrap your mind around this. 
And so we'll wrap our mind around it. We'll go ahead and we'll say, okay. So let's see, what does he say? Verse six, set your mind on Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made into human likeness and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The most excruciating death, the most humble death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that all that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what does Paul do? He says, listen, you are to live, there's this call to unity that flows out of obedience to the gospel and the prescription is what? The gospel. We just went around full circle. He says, it's the gospel. Focus on the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that says we are all sinners, that we all deserve wrath, we all deserve punishment, yet Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, God in the flesh, the maker of the universe, came down, lived a perfect and righteous life, was obedient to death, death on a cross, the worst death possible. But yet he was risen three days later. And he's exalted. And he is Lord. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we are no longer destined for hell, but we're destined for heaven. And we too are exalted in Christ. That's what he says is the prescription. And so I want to just briefly go over six observa observations that we can from this verse of how to put on the mindset of Jesus Christ. And it's really putting on Christ-centered lenses and living a life like this. So let's just, just walk through this really quick. First thing we see, what we're called to do is abandon our rights. Verse six, we see Jesus did not consider equality. Jesus is God, yet he submits to the will of the Father. He abandons his rights. And the thing about the cross is the cross levels the playing field because in front of the cross, we are all sinners in need of a savior. Not only that, we are the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trust, trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. We must abandon all our rights and realize that there's no sense of superiority to anyone in here. Because we're all sinners. And each one of us are the chief of sinners. Therefore, that just obliterates that idea that we're better than anyone. Secondly, we have to embrace interdependency. Verse 6. We continue that he says he didn't consider equality um, and something to be used for his own advantage. Christ was God, but he didn't use that to his advantage. Instead, he submitted to the will of the Father and allowed the power of the Holy Spirit to guide him during his ministry. He was dependent and interdependent on the Holy Spirit. And we are called to be interdependent on one another. We're in this life together. We're in this life together. Let's get it through our minds. Like we're all here for a purpose so we could be here together. Romans 12.5 says, So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to one another. And the fact is, is we need each other. 
We're not, we're not meant to do this, this, this life alone. We, we can do it alone. So we must embrace that interdependency. Thirdly, we need to empty ourselves. We see verse 7. He made himself to be nothing. Christ emptied himself of his deserved glory. When it talks about he became nothing. It means he said, you know what? I'm setting my glory aside during my time on earth. And yet, what he did was he, he pursued the glory of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what our call is to do. We need to empty ourselves of any vain glory that we might have in this life so that we could bring glory to God wherever God has placed us. Fourthly, we're to live a life of servant leadership. Verse 7 says, taking on the very nature of a servant. He took the very nature of a slave, a doulos. Matthew 20, 28 says, just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, not to not come to, to serve, but to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. We're called to serve one another. We're called to serve whoever God has placed in our path. We're called to be servants. And we're called to lead through that service. That could be by helping, that could be by listening, that could be by bearing with one another's burdens. But nonetheless, we're called to serve. We're not called to usurp any authority, but to serve, and in that we lead, like Jesus Christ did. Fifthly, we're called to be obedient to our front line. Our front lines, wherever God has placed us. Verse 8, he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient, even death on a cross. Christ was totally submitted to the will of the Father. Wherever the Father wanted him, that's where he was going. And God has placed each and every one of us in a context of life, at a certain place in work, with our families. And he says, be obedient to where I've placed you to live a life worthy of gospel. We need not to lament, oh, I wish I could do more Christian things. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Now live a life worthy of the gospel. So be obedient to our front lines. Finally, six, we need to adopt a lifestyle of worship. We need to adopt a lifestyle of worship. This is the biggest key here. This is the linchpin of it all. Remember verse 10. Jesus Christ is Lord. Our whole purpose on this world, in this world, is to worship Christ and to usher in and bring in more worshipers of Christ. And so when we go and we, and we don these attitudes, this mindset of Christ, we are worshiping Christ in that. And so we must see that our whole lives are an opportunity to worship Christ. So we must adopt this life of worship. When people walk through these doors, or they interact with us at work, or at the store, at the grocery store, at home, or wherever, I have to ask, ask you, do, do they encounter the kingdom of God? That's really the, the thing here. A life worthy of the gospel is when they come in contact with us or watch us or see us, they go, I've just experienced something I've never experienced before. That doesn't mean we don't have problems. It just means we have hope. Or true hope. In his book, Life Together, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who if you've never read him, he's an awesome author, um, pastor during um, the Nazi, um, Nazi Germany. 
He says, strong and weak, wise and foolish, gifted or ungifted, pious or impious, the diverse individuals in the community are no longer incentives for taking and judging and condemning and thus excuses for self-justification. They are rather causes for rejoicing in one another and serving one another. Each member of the community is given his particular place. By this is no longer the place in which he can most successfully assert himself, but the place where he can best perform his service. I'm excited about what God's doing here in North Andover. I'm like really excited about it. But I also know that this unity sneaks in very easy. So we must heed this call. We must really embrace the means and don the attitude of Christ. So join me in this. Let's rejoice in this. Let's enjoy one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for saving people like us. People who are, have issues, who have problems, who are weird, who are whatever. You, you unite us. This is a miracle that we could even be united because we come from so many different walks of life and different paths. And so I thank you for this. May we heed this call. May we pursue unity and humility with everything that we can in a radical, God-glorifying way. So we love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.